and everybody gets it back again. Don't take no mess out the rose garden. Jesus, they're on fire. They're what we desire. The men in black can handle it. Other teams can scrabble it. How they win that game today. There's just one thing you can say. How does Scotty shoot that three? Believe it, it ain't easy. How did Brian jump so sweet? Believe it, it ain't easy. It's the flying dog that's in your lap. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Rose Garden Report podcast. I am Sean Hyken, the author and proprietor of the Rose Garden Report newsletter. I've got a great episode for you today. This is going to cover a lot of the kind of league business stuff that also touches on some Blazer stuff. I've got uh, my buddy Mike Vorkanov, who covers a lot of that type of stuff, like NBA league business. That's kind of his beat at The Athletic. Does a great job covering that beat. I wanted to have him on for I've wanted to have him on for a while because there's there's a lot of interesting Blazers ownership stuff going on. But then with everything that happened yesterday and the day before with the Robert Sarver investigation and the results and the suspension and Adam Silver's press conference, I thought it was an even better time to have him on. So we do spend some time on the Robert Sarver fall out at the beginning and then after that we kind of go into some more blazer specific stuff like where things stand with the jody allen phil knight drama we talk a little bit about the likelihood of portland getting a wnba team and mike has done some reporting in the past about uh the possibility of wnba expansion so he had some great insights into that and then we also get into portland not having a g league team and uh, some stuff about the league's new TV deal, some stuff about expansion. So it's a, it's a lot of interesting stuff just to, to get into a lot of different topics, and I think Mike does a great job covering that stuff at The Athletic. You should be reading his work. You should be following him. He brings some great insight on this podcast. Uh, as always, you can find the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, anywhere else that you get podcasts. Make sure you do all that. Subscribe, rate, review. And, you know, subscribe to the Rose Garden Report newsletter, rosegardenreport.beehive.com. Free and paid subscriptions. And just one more reminder, I guess, that I will be going down to Santa Barbara in a couple of weeks for the Blazers training camp. And everything that I write from there is going to be behind the paywall for paid subscribers only. So if you are wanting to read anything that I write from the first week of training camp, you should go get a paid subscription to help make that type of reporting and those types of trips possible. So just kind of another reminder of all of that before we get into this conversation with Mike. So let's let's go. Let's get into it. How you doing, Mike? Thanks for doing this. Yeah, we've been talking about it for so long. I'm happy we actually uh, we got it done or are getting it done. Not, you know, I figured this is a good time. I mean, <laughs> obviously, so there's, there's a lot of stuff I want to hit with you. You know, your beat at The Athletic is, I think broadly, it's called like the business of basketball. So, you know, it's a lot of kind of the off-court, you know, league business, financial stuff there's a lot of stuff in that realm i want to hit with you some blazer related some not i think the obvious place to start since this is the biggest story in the league right now is all the fallout from the robert sarver uh 
investigation, punishment, press conference. I watched Adam Silver's press conference on TV yesterday. You were actually there. You got a couple of questions in, uh, you, you know, you and Howard Beck from SI, Tanya Ganguly from the Times, Tim Reynolds from the AP, all did a really good job, I think, of really pushing Adam on some of the stuff. Was it was it as bad in person as it looked on TV? Was it as bad in terms of just his response to the whole thing and and the way you know how it's it seemed to me like I made the comparison obviously on on Twitter and in the column that I wrote to a press conference that happened here in Portland a little over a year ago in terms of just how obvious it was what questions were coming and how badly prepared the person still was for them. Was it, was it really like that bad in person? I mean, it's, it wasn't Adam Silver's finest moment. I think everyone can agree with that. I think a part of it was the position that he's in. Right. Um, (laughs) You know, like there's, uh, there's almost a, I think a facade that gets thrown up there, which is like Adam Silver speaks for himself for the league. Uh, and tries to be, um, you know, as as diplomatic as possible. And there, there's the real politic of all this, which is like he doesn't get to make all the decisions, right? It's not his choice necessarily whether to uh, try to uh, strip the team from Robert Sarver. But additionally, like his rhetoric, his language, uh, the arguments that he used were much softer than what he said uh, when the Donald Sterling thing happened, because I went back and I reread that press conference. Um, before yesterday's and you know some of his answers he it was clear that he was searching for a rationale um, I think the first question from Tim Reinhold asking him about the difference between Donald Sterling and Robert Sarver uh, he was uh, a little elliptical in, in his answers right and it's it's you know it's clear that just <laughs> the situations were so much different in the outcome I think um, with the NBA and Adam Sil- Adam Silver uh, than what the situations actually were in terms of what happened. And so how you spin that, I don't really know. I don't think that the NBA was really able to spin that all that well either. And so that just kind of made it, I think, uncomfortable at times. Well, the differences between the the Donald Sterling situation and the uh, Sarver situation, I think there's there's a few things, you know, some of them have been pointed out, like with, with Donald Sterling, there was an audio recording that leaked to TMZ of him saying racist stuff about specific. I mean, he was telling his girlfriend V. Stiviano not to bring black people to games, which in and of itself is bad. But he was specifically making disparaging comments about Magic Johnson, who's like probably one of the top three most universally revered people in the history of the sport of basketball. That like it's very it was very easy, especially when they again the audio recording was out and everybody could hear it and it was leaked publicly and anybody could go listen to it and see exactly what was said and how it was said. It's a lot easier to get people outraged than it is for you know the NBA to put out this report saying you know and, and it can have whatever it wants in it and obviously a lot of the stuff in the Robert Sarver report that was released the other day was pretty indefensible and pretty hard to spin as something that somebody should be allowed to continue owning a team, but it doesn't hit the same when you don't hear audio recording of him saying that about somebody as loved as magic Johnson, when it's just, Oh, this guy made some inappropriate comments in the workplace. And this guy bullied some employees. Like when you just read that on a piece of paper, obviously it's bad, but it doesn't have like the same visceral impact. And I think that's why, there wasn't like the sustained, you know, league wide, you know, it didn't, it, this, this didn't make its way outside of the NBA news world into like 
I, I guess like, so the litmus test that I always use is like my parents who don't follow sports really at all. Like they listen to a lot of NPR and when a sports story makes its way onto NPR, they'll call me and be like, Hey, have you heard about this? And I feel like the Donald Sterling thing quickly made its way into that realm of being like an actual big news story outside of the sports world in a way that I don't think the Robert Sarver thing did. So I think that's what, at least part of what led to a lot of the differences in kind of the public perception and just like how big this blew up to a point where Adam had to do, you know, the most that he could do about it. Right. But I, I think that kind of gets to the point, which is you're almost reverse engineering uh, this is the, the punishment, right? Right. Um, to fit the PR hit uh, in a way, uh, you know, obviously like the Donald Sterling uh, stuff was bad, but you know, that <laughs> there's a lot of stuff with Donald Sterling and a yeah, lot of it that I came mean- to light. Go back and um, read and, some know, of those housing discrimination lawsuits from like the nineties and the mid two thousands. There's some, that's what I'm saying. Like there's a lot there and there was over a long period of time, not just what he did with the Clippers. Um, but the, when he got banned for life in that press conference, uh, it was narrowly tailored to just that audio, right? Um, what Adam Silver was talking about was narrowly tailored to that one instance in the audio um, with V. Stiviano, right? Here we have an 18 year period uh, with Robert Sarver of him using racist language, him demeaning women, him being discriminatory towards women, um, him uh, exposing himself as a way to embarrass or dominate um, other male employees, according to the language that was used, used in the report itself, um, you know, not to mention a hostile workplace that arguably could have been said was created by Sarver. Uh, with the trickle-down effect, again, just using kind of what was said in the report itself. So it wasn't a one-time instance. And, you know, I think Adam Silver said, like, you know, he's grown. Uh, that's arguable. I don't know. Even yeah, when I don't know about that one. the ESPN report came out in November, uh, he denied all of it. Um, there was some stuff in the report that he denied as well. And that the uh, the investigators, if you read through it, uh, said, we talked to Sarver. Sarver said, this didn't happen. We happen to believe the witnesses and the complainants, right? Um there was, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, Adam Silver said, like, uh, you know, this was early on in his tenure. And there was a lot of stuff that happened early on in his tenure. Um, but there was also an email in 2016 that he sent to the NBA using uh, the N-word. Uh, he was told in 2004, right, the first instance that they found of him using that language uh, not to say it again. And so as late so as 12, 12 years, years later. later. Right. Um so again, and there are other instances that they weren't able to, you know, that they mentioned that they weren't able to, like, let's say, full on prove or cor- uh, corroborate, right? So there was a lot there. And it, it was over the course. Um, so, you know, you want to say, okay, this happened early in his tenure, I could argue, were the things that were in the report, you know, kind of backdated to early on in his tenure, because more of those people had left and were able to speak more freely, as opposed to stuff over the last few years. Maybe if anything happened, a lot of those employees probably still are in Phoenix in the Suns organization, right? And not as likely to come forward and speak because of all the, you know, the different, um, you know, realistic scenarios of what happens when you come out and speak. And when you do, you know, I, as well, like there are so many people that came out bravely to tell their stories and the stories of what happened and of working there, right? Yeah, there was that woman that had that Saw tweet. Saw still there. You said that, that woman's tweet a couple days ago before any of this stuff came out that said something about like, we all broke our NDAs because we thought the NBA would do the right, basically seemingly like hinted that they kind of had an idea that this punishment was coming and it was basically going to be the slap on the wrist that it ended up being. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't know uh, what specifically you're talking about. Um, I hadn't seen that tweet, but I mean, yeah, they, it know, was like, like Saturday NBA, or Sunday, I think. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the NBA spoke with 
you know, the Suns and let people out of their NDAs to be able to speak with them. So, and I understand why they would be like in arms, right? Um, especially when you go through this long litany of uh, behavior for Robert Sarver uh, and for the Suns while he, you know, was running the team and, you know, he still gets to keep the team, right? Like the $10 million, big money, sure. Um, in the grand scheme of things, but you know, not for, not the, for Robert Sarver. That's not, that's he bought like, the that's Suns. Like, that's like me or you getting fined a hundred dollars. He, he bought the Suns when they were worth, uh, they were sold for $401 million. Um, you know, I don't have the exact number off the top of my hand, but you know, uh, I, I would say the, uh, the franchise value of the Suns is probably somewhere around 2 billion now. Right. I mean, the Timberwolves and the Jazz both sold for around 1.5. I would think that a team in a major market like Phoenix would easily get over two. 1.92 billion, according to Sportico. Sure, yeah. Summer. It sounds about um, right. So, you know, you're talking about almost 5X there. Um, and I, he didn't pay the full freight. You know, 201 million of that 401 million was uh, assuming just debt, right? So it was He only also only million. owns, like think, I think, about 35% of the franchise. He's not like the majority stakeholder he just owns a bigger stake than any of the minority partners yeah i don't know how much he owns exactly i know that when the team was sold he i read it's in the 35 percent and then um you know obviously over the years there have been different you know, their sales their topping offs their dilutions like so i don't know how much he actually owns uh but yeah so i mean 10 million dollars you put in the scope of things uh and i think adam silver also said you know like look uh in explaining why he treated you know an nba owner gets treated differently than a NBA employee, you know, he says there's the reputational hit and just, you know, what it does, uh, the value of that is hard to assess. And, you know, you can kind of go in and read the transcript to listen to the press conference again. But um, yeah, you know, I, I think the feedback that I saw on Twitter, the columns that people wrote, um, you know, I don't think anyone received their, our, the NBA's arguments very well and Adam Silver's arguments very well. Yeah, and the the line that he had in response to Beck's question, this is the one that kind of went viral where he said that, you know, owners kind of have different rights than employees because the question that Beck asked was anybody who works for any company and specifically the NBA if any of this stuff came out about them they would get fired immediately so why is that not the standard for the owners and Adam Silver kind of accidentally told the truth there where he said that owners have different rights because they own the team and then that kind of blew up and the NBA actually put out a statement kind of walking it back a little bit later, which is funny because like, it was pretty clear what Adam said, but that part of it was actually like the most truthful thing. I think that Adam said in the entire press conference, as much as, you know, people can say, you know, not like that, but like, that is the truth of it. And I think the thing people don't realize or misremember, and I wrote about this in the column that I wrote yesterday even in 2014, Adam Silver banned Donald Sterling for life from being an active participant in owning the Clippers or going to any games or, you know, league events or any of that stuff. And he was in his authority to do that. But he couldn't actually force Donald Sterling to sell the team. What actually happened was, and, you know, a lot of the kind of the personal dynamics of their relationship and their marriage, you know, if you want a kind of a deeper look into that, Ramona Shelburne at ESPN did a whole podcast series about the whole thing maybe three or four years ago. So go find that if you want more of the details. But basically, his wife, Shelly, their marriage at that point was kind of like they were estranged, but they were staying together legally for financial reasons. And when all this blew up, she kind of saw this opportunity to like, wait, like my husband is getting dragged through the mud and Steve Ballmer is offering $2 billion for us to just cash out and just, just walk away from it. Let's go. And then 
she was able to get a judge to legally declare her husband to be, I think the, the term is mentally incapacitated, so that then she would get full control of, of his assets and she could sell the team and she didn't have to worry about getting his permission or whatever. And that's how the NBA was kind of able to get it done as quickly as they were. And I think by like this happened during the middle of the 2014 playoffs. And I think by that fall, by the start of next training camp, I think like the sale to Steve Ballmer had already been done. So there were a lot of just like extenuating circumstances with the uh, Donald Sterling thing that I don't think are really applicable with either this or, you know, since this is a Blazers podcast, I think people who are interested in like the league business and sports, you know, ownership stuff or, you know, following the Jody Allen, Phil Knight, Blazers ownership saga and I would just say that if if the stuff that came out in this Robert Sarver report wasn't enough to get the league to really force him out I don't know what could come out about Jody Allen that would you know if anybody is trying to get their hopes up for something like this to happen there that would force her to sell like I don't know what would have to happen for that to happen I still do believe in both cases I, I I'm interested in your thoughts on this I think and this is not this is not source this is not based on any intel this is just my read of the situation I do not think that in a year when the Robert Sarver suspension is up he will still be the owner of the Sun do you agree with that like what, what do you think about that well so I mean you know if you look back to the Sterling stuff I I think there's two things right one, you're right. Adam Silver is not the person who has the authority, the unilateral authority to take a team from someone, right? Right. The NBA owners do. They have to do it with a three-quarters vote of the board of governors. Um, so it's clear uh, that, you know, I don't know, you know, I don't know if that would have gotten done then, but at least it would have been easier, I think. I think with Sterling also, like, there was this thing of, the Clippers play in LA, which is the second biggest media market. And there's still such a joke. And if we had a competent owner there, they could make everybody so much more money. And I, and I think that was kind of a, also a motivating factor where I think the other owners were a little bit more open to the idea of pushing Donald Sterling out than maybe they are for somebody like Robert Sarver or any, you know, any other owner you could name that maybe has some not great stuff, but isn't as like universally thought of as a joke and their team is cheap in a major market like Sterling. I think that's the other part of it. Yeah. I don't, I don't know the interpersonal dynamics, the politics of all of the owners. Right. Um, you know, and I think the posture that Adam took at the time was I will do everything. He said something along the lines of, I will do everything in my power to get them to sell as well. Right. Whereas yesterday it was conciliatory. Um, it was forgiving. Right. Um, he said he, grew as a person and there's context that I have that you don't have. That's not in the public report. Right. So it was a lot more, um, you know, it was a lot more, let's, you know, I don't know, passive accepting, sure. let's say of Sarver than it was. Um, and, and so, you know, I would, do I think he'll own the team in a year? Like it's hard to come back from being suspended for a year. Um, I think Glenn Taylor got suspended for a year, but that was for different purposes. That was for uh, right. the was Joe Smith the illegal con max contract. contract. Not yeah. nearly the not nearly the same level. That was like a basketball competitive thing that in the in the at the end of the day nobody really right. cares about that much. That was not this. That was not anywhere close to this in terms of like something that there's going to be a public outrage of saying this guy has to go. Right. So I mean, then it becomes internal, right? Like, can uh, can people inside? The Suns organizations get him to sell. Do they have, you know, almost what happened with the Washington commanders, right? He, uh, Daniel Snyder, had two 
minority owners uh, who I believe had um, you know something equal to to fifty percent, if I remember correctly, right? And they tried to team up together, and and that became its own kind of separate thing. And ultimately, they sold. You know, if uh, Robert Sarver doesn't have, if he just has a plurality of the ownership stake, then what the do all the minority owners in Phoenix decide that they want to do? Um, there's also just kind of how this progresses, right? Like we saw strong statements from LeBron James, from Chris Paul, from Tamika Tremaglio. Um, what if it just becomes abundantly clear that he can no longer own a team and have that be a tenable situation for the NBA? Because players, both in the NBA and the WNBA, remember this also includes the Phoenix Mercury, right? And I would say, I don't know how you choose, like, I, I don't, I'm not trying to tier it or like rank it, but there's a lot of bad stuff in there about the way that Robert Sarver treated women. And imagine if you play for the Mercury and this is the guy um, that, you know, owns the team that you play for, right? So th- this this is all the stuff they have to deal with. So I don't know. Like, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, basically, if, if within this year period um, he ultimately sells a share because it's just you, – you'd really have to be um, high level of shameless, right, to just go back and uh, run the team as if nothing was wrong. Yeah, I mean, I I tend to agree with you. I think there's also the element, though, that these guys have so much money that, like, at a certain point, like, they don't really care that much about optics because you don't get to be that rich by caring that much about optics. I do agree with you that it's probably an untenable situation, especially, you know, you've had LeBron and you've had Chris Paul. Those are two pretty powerful. LeBron is LeBron and Chris Paul, A, is the highest profile player on the Suns, but he also is a former president of the players union and has business investment ties with Bob Iger, who's the former CEO of Disney, which is a major league partner and has expressed interest in buying the Suns in the past publicly. So you can connect some dots there if you want to, it's maybe kind of a similar situation to Phil Knight being kind of the owner in waiting whenever the Blazers, Jody Allen, Vulcan trust situation gets resolved do you what what is your read on the whole blazers uh owner just to transition away from the starver stuff because you you know everybody's talking about that this week but like what's your kind of read on the whole blazers trust phil knight just like that that whole situation as it stands right now you know you talk to a lot more people on the like league business side than i do like what 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 have you kind of gathered about that uh to me it just seems like a waiting game um really, you know, about, you know, when, when this will all happen. This was something that Jody Allen said in her statement back in um, June, I believe as well, right? It does seem like it's a question of if, uh, of when, not if. Um, the way that I understand trust to work and the way that we've seen them elsewhere is that um, there's a kind of a time period attached uh, to when these things happen, um, to when you have to sell off uh, the estate, Right. Uh, that's the big unknown in all of this. Obviously, you know, Jody Allen knows, Vulcan knows. I'm guessing that the NBA certainly knows um, what that, that timetable is. And so, you know, it, then it becomes like, okay, how does that sale happen? You know, does it happen where it's just you can sell it whenever you want by that certain date? Uh, you saw with the Broncos in the NFL, I, I think by the by the uh, tax of the trust, they had to open up a bidding process, right, to the highest bidder. So it couldn't just be that someone comes in with an offer and then you decide to take it. Like there had to be, it seems like a formal bidding process um, that you have to go through. And so we don't know what's in uh, the Allen Trust. We don't know how the uh, the whole thing will work. But it does seem to me, even as much as from what uh, Jody Allen said, it's you know it's just a matter of time 
The only thing is we don't know if that means like two years or 10 years. But Well, she tried to say it was 10 to 20 years, but we're already starting to see about a year ago. Well, it's Paul been Allen's. five years, right? Well, it's right, been five yes, years since that, Paul but Allen died. Also, like, they're starting We're to sell. Five. They're selling his other stuff, like his, you know, his, one of his super yachts sold about a year ago for, I think, around a quarter billion dollars. The New York Times just reported maybe a month ago that his art collection, which they said is worth over a billion dollars, is going to start to go up for auction soon. I don't know if it already has, but that he has like one of the most legendary. I don't really know much about the art world, but apparently he had a pretty com- impressive collection of, you know, artworks that was going to go up for auction soon. So clearly it doesn't take 10 to 20 years necessarily to sell a team. The Pat Bowlin, the owner of the Broncos died in 2019, which is after Paul Allen died and they already sold his team. So clearly they could sell. I think it's a sell by date, not a sell now or sell at date. You know what I mean? So again, we don't know. We don't know, but I I think it's, you know, there's so, I think there's speculation as to when that's going to happen. Um, and I assume there will be a number of interested buyers that go beyond just um, Phil Knight. Although that seems to have, you know, it, <laughs> he seems to have started the process early and tried to get a jump on it. Well, and he's also, I mean, it was kind of a similar thing. Because remember the Clippers, uh, there were other groups that, besides Steve Ballmer, that were interested in buying. Like I think David Geffen, the music executive, uh, tried to put together a group. I know that... Uh, Larry Ellison, who had just tried to buy the Warriors and the Grizzlies a few years earlier, and I think at one point was in the mix with the Blazers, uh, tried to buy a group. But the league basically decided, you know, Steve Ballmer kind of got a raw deal when the Kings didn't end up moving to Seattle. We want Steve Ballmer to be our guy. And they ended up just kind of shutting out all the other bidders and expediting the process and getting it done with Steve Ballmer. I don't know what the and, and the there was a trust thing involved with the clippers with uh shelly sterling you know being taking over as the trustee also even though uh donald sterling wasn't dead so this kind of stuff it's all it's all kind of complicated i do believe just an educated guess i think the league would prefer for phil knight to be the person that buys the blazers because they have wanted not just them but like the nfl baseball all of the leagues have wanted phil knight to buy a team because they all do so much business with nike anyway and he's one of the most powerful figures in sports that they all have wanted him to buy a team in their respective sports he's never been interested until now but now that he's 84 i think my 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 uh read on it and i've written about this before is jody wants to hang on until 2025 because the way that the tr- the paul allen trust is set up the money that gets generated from these sales goes to charity and goes to this, you know, the philanthropic stuff that Paul Allen had designated it to go to. She doesn't get to keep any of that money. And so she wants to hang on until 25 so that she can get her piece of a, this new TV deal and b the expansion money that everybody kind of knows is going to come in in the next few years. So she can get her piece of that and then sell the team. But then the league is like, you know, Phil Knight wants to buy the team and not to be morbid here, but you know, Phil Knight is 84. He might not be around in three years. So they want to get it done sooner than that. And now it's just a matter, just like with the Sarver stuff. It's like, can they put enough pressure on her behind the scenes and, you know, impress upon her, like how bad it could get for her from an optic standpoint, if she doesn't play ball and sell the team to Phil Knight. So I'm interested to see how all that plays out. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I think, um, you know, 2025 is going to be an interesting year. That's when the meteorites deal, uh, the new one will kick in, right? Um, if there is expansion, I I kind of anticipate, I don't think it'll happen until after the meteorites deal gets kicked in. 
By happen, do you mean get announced or the teams start playing? No, I think get announced. Um, I, I think that the NBA probably wants to go order of operations, like get that stuff done. Um, there's no deadline for expansion, right? There is for a media rights deal. There is for a CBA. Um, you want to get all that stuff in line right before you start even adding teams on top of it and maybe even complicating things even further. So you don't buy that report from the for whatever random Vegas reporter a couple days ago that they're going to announce the Seattle and Vegas expansion teams at this Seattle preseason game next month? I would be kind of surprised, I think. Um, you know, I'm not the end-all, be-all uh, source on these things, but I, I just, you know, talking to people who kind of have been, you know, know about these things, they think that it, the expansion would happen after the media rights deal gets negotiated. Um that would be the, the sequence of things. But you never know with these. You never know, right? Uh, what we saw as late as uh, was June during the finals, Adam Silver said, expansion is not happening right now. So to have this like a big, quick turnaround in what, four months or so, um, that would be kind of shocking. Usually the NBA, when it does make big changes, doesn't do them quickly. They slow roll them out, right? Um, you know, we've been talking about the play in tournament for how long or Adam Silver has been talking about it for how long right literally um, since he took the job yeah so like they roll these things out they kind of throw out trial balloons like they don't just go zero to 60 um with their big ideas right I think because they want to see what the public perception is I think they want to just kind of not not <laughs> you know just like drop it into people's laps so I think for expansion I would think that if they were to expand and when they do like there would be some indication first it's like oh we're thinking about adding teams you know like all this type of stuff not just like we're not doing it now to in October going okay it's happening also you, the WNBA is going through their own expansion yeah process. well we're gonna we're gonna I want to hit that in a second but he has already kind of started to soft launch the expansion thing because you just referenced his uh finals press conference uh which actually was the same day that the uh report came out about the Phil Knight offer for the Blazers. And he said that at some point the team will have to be sold. But the most telling thing in that press conference, you know, this was about three months ago at this point was his answer to a question about expansion, because he was just, I went back and watched it at the time, whoever it was some Bay area reporter, I think that asked him about that. And he said, you know, the reporter just asked is the reporter did not mention any cities in his question. He just said, is, you know, is expansion on the table? And Adam said, expansion isn't currently on the table. And then he went into this whole thing about what great markets Seattle and Las Vegas are. And, you know, you know, at some, like basically like said without saying that they've already decided that those are the two cities that they're going to expand into, which I think everybody in the league knows that those two cities are next up. But it's like, Adam Silver, and you, you know, you, you've covered him for a long time, so have I. He doesn't say this kind of stuff by accident or just say stuff off mm-hmm. the cuff. Like, why would he unprompted bring up those two cities as, you know, great markets to talk up what great potential they have if expansion really was just not something they were even thinking about? Oh, I didn't say it was something they weren't thinking about. I think it was something that's not happening. Or they seem Well, right, but if it was not, not happening, happening right then now. why would he just, why would he bring those two uh, right, cities Right up? now, I meant like happening right now. But like, I think if you like talk to anyone about expansion, like those two cities are kind of the clear front runners, right? Um, and he's not oblivious to that. I think he knows most of us aren't oblivious to that. Um, so I think like if he took like kind of this, uh, this blind look at it, be like, oh, I don't know what's going on. Who knows what cities it would be if it were to happen, like, He's being a little real about it. I just think, like, in terms of will it happen in October during the preseason game, like, I would be surprised that the league makes an announcement then. Yeah. 
you brought up the WNBA thing briefly, and I want to hit on that because that does have some major Portland implications. You, you and Chantel Jennings, the athletics uh, women's basketball reporter, did a piece in early June, kind of breaking the news that the WNBA is looking seriously at expansion and that there are six cities on the shortlist. And I believe that I don't have it in front of me, but I believe that the six cities were Oakland, San Francisco, Portland, Philly, Nashville, Toronto. Is that right? Um, yeah, those are the six cities that we wrote about specifically. I think um, the commissioner, Kathy Engelbert, said the other day that they're down to 10 cities, if I, uh, if I remember correctly as well. Okay. My so and she also, if you want to read between the lines at her at her uh, press conference the other day, she said something about how they're going to play an exhibition game in Toronto as a precursor for global expansion. So if you want to put two and two together, it seems like there it maybe feels like maybe that Toronto is kind of earmarked for one of these two expansion teams and. I would just assume that the Bay Area is going to get one of them because Joe Lacob is really pushing to make it happen, and the Warriors have a ton of money that they're that they would want to spend on something like that. Is 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 that like what do you think? You know, as somebody who's done a lot of reporting on this, what do you think the chances are for Portland to end up being one of the cities that gets one of these expansion teams? I think Portland has a good case to make. You know, there's a lot of stuff goes into it. Um, the two big things that I think are the first questions the WNBA asks are where's the money coming from, right? Right. And where are you playing? So the good thing for Portland in that case is there's been a high-profile person identified as the person who could bankroll the team, buy the team. Um, That's Kirk Brown, right? And the arena situation is clear-cut too because, you know, the, the Blazers and the city of Portland are backing his bid and so that there's a place for them to pe- uh, play and dates shouldn't be a problem in the summer. I would guess they would probably play at the Memorial Coliseum, actually, not the Moda Center. Yeah, I don't know which one of those two teams, uh, two arenas it would be, but, you know, the Blazers, um, you know, have control of both, right? And they're, yes. they're backing the bid. So it, either way, like whatever they land on, um, it wouldn't be problematic to kind of get bids, you know, which is like uh, an issue in Philadelphia as of right now because the 76ers, if their ownership group were to want to get involved – um, they don't have control of the Wells Fargo Arena, right? They don't have control of dates. Uh, that's problematic. You know, in Oakland, uh, well, the Bay Area, there's two kind of competing bids between Oakland and San Francisco, right? Um, the Oakland group does have kind of a, a deal in place where they could, uh, <clears throat> you know, have control of the Oakland Arena, and uh, but the ownership group doesn't have the same cachet as you know Joe Lake up in San Francisco, right? Which also has their own arena. So wait, so wait, so it's not so it's not just a matter of. It, correct. So, so help me understand this. So it's not, it, there are two different, there's an Oakland group and then there's the San Francisco group, which is Joe Lacob. Mm-hmm. So it's not, so it's not a situation where the Warriors are going to own the WNBA Bay area team, no matter what. And it's just a matter of, do they keep the team playing at chase or do they throw the fans in Oakland who lost the Warriors and the Raiders a bone by having them play at Oracle? Like, is so it's, 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 there's two separate Bay area groups. Is that, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, I would be very surprised if you know the Lake Up and the Warriors ownership group were to um, you know get a WNBA team and have them play in Oakland. They have an arena. Uh, they need to fill dates in the summer too. At Chase, yeah, and I think what I yeah I think one of the appeals would be to have kind of year round basketball at the Chase Center, right? Um, and that would be one of the reasons for buying a WNBA team. 
So, because uh, they've had their chances in the past. And the Oakland group um, is led by Elena Beard, who's a former WNBA All Star. Um, and it's the AASCG group. Uh, AASCG um, is kind of run by a collection of people with Elena as the front woman. And then uh, they have local business people on there. And then Bill Duffy is kind of an advisor to it. Um, Bill Duffy being kind of, you know, the, the NBA agent. super agent. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, there's two separate groups in the Bay Area. Um, how you want to uh, handicap that in terms of which is most likely to get the the team, that's up to you. Um, I don't know, at least when we were reporting that, that the Warriors were all in on, on getting a team yet, um, but they're definitely interested in looking at it. So I think there's a lot of teams that are in competition or a lot of cities that are in competition. I think Portland has a good case to make, um, you know, and Toronto does too. There's an interested uh, kind of ownership group there and maybe MLSC uh, decides to get really involved or back the bid there by uh, the ownership group that we mentioned in our story. So there's a lot of different things going on. And, uh, you know, one of the questions for the WNBA, like when it comes to Toronto, uh, <laughs> they're still flying charter. I'm sorry, they're still flying um, uh, commercial, right? They don't have charter flights. Uh, that gets a lot harder when you have to go through customs and uh, all the things they have to do to fly from the U.S. to Canada. Uh, if you're now having to do that as a team, as we saw, they had troubles this year. Uh, just flying commercially from city to city for games. So that that would be kind of an added variable thrown into the mix and something they have to consider until uh, they get charter flights for everybody. Right, and I think one other thing to keep in mind with the Portland thing, and I think one thing that could uh, eventually kind of bolster the case that they might have is there was some reporting, I don't remember, it was somebody local, it might have been Canzano, I don't remember who it was locally, but... There were the day that the because the same day I, I if I remember this correctly the day because I remember this because you and I were talking about it like and then the other news hit but that day but like you and Chantel dropped the story about the WNBA expansion and then about three hours later Woj reported that Phil Knight had submitted a bid to buy the Blazers it was I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. it was all the same day that this all happened but seems about right somebody <laughs> I don't reported, know. all these days bleed into it yeah 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 no for sure. But like, I think it was Kenzano. Somebody reported that there was a possibility that Kirk Brown, who you mentioned, who was the guy leading the bid to get a WNBA team here in Portland, could possibly be joining and buying into the Phil Knight, Alan Smolaniski ownership group that is interested in buying the Blazers. And if you want to put some other dots together... Well, uh, just, I, you know, from what I understand, at least as of then, as of when that came out, I don't know how likely that was. Uh-huh. Um, so I don't, I don't necessarily, uh, you know, I don't know if that was actually the case. That, that might have been just um, something out that, out that was out there. I hadn't heard about um, Kirk Brown's interest in the Blazers. Well, they certainly don't need the money. They don't need another investor. But if you just want, and that's like- the thing, you you don't want to, <laughs> you don't need to. If you don't need to take on more investors, usually right. you don't want to. It just becomes a bigger headache along the way. Um, right. And for especially for minority investors too, like unless you're the person who's making the decisions, you're just putting a lot of money into passive investment that all you get is season tickets for. Well. The, the the thing I was trying to get to, though, is that I think before last WNBA season, it was within the last year, Nike just made a $75 million growth investment into the WNBA. So tying somebody who wants to bring a WNBA team to Portland into an ownership group that's led by the founder of Nike could make some sense just from like a synergistic standpoint. To, to do that that's kind of the 
point that I was getting to. Yeah, and that's that's something we mentioned in our report too. Like I think the fact that Nike is there, it's part of the original game changers for the WNBA, was an investor in their recent capital raise. They own equity in the league. Um, would be a big thing <clears throat> and a big kind of boon uh, to the case of Portland, right? Like it would be kind of a gateway to the shoe companies that are in Portland with Adidas and uh, Nike. And I think Under Armour might have a kind of smaller headquarters in Portland as well. They have a well, I'm not wrong. They have a, yeah, they have a presence. It's not the same. It, it's not nearly the same level as Nike or Adidas, but they have a presence there. Yeah. And I would say, you know, you mentioned Phil Knight owning an NBA team and kind of Nike and all that. Um Nike's going to keep doing business with the NBA. Uh, it's going to keep doing business with the NFL, with all the leagues that you know that might want him or might not want him to be an investor. I would think having a close relationship to Nike is much more beneficial for the WNBA uh, than any other league. Not only because they are equity investors in the league, uh, but also that would be a you know if they can get closer and be able to work closer together, you know that'd be a way to supplement income for WNBA players, right? Um, that's been an issue for players for as long as the W's been around, uh, finding ways to come up with more income, to come up uh, with ways to boost their salary beyond what is the max salary this year of $228,000. And so I think that that would be a big kind of, um, you know, big part of the appeal for Portland is just having stronger ties to shoe companies, having a like an in-person presence uh, where they are and finding a way to kind of, you know, wrap those two things together. Yeah, and I think I think beyond all this stuff, there's also just a strong case to make for Portland to get a job. Like we we did have a WNBA team for uh, two years in the early 2000s, the Portland Fire. I used to go to their games when I was a kid, but they folded after yeah. two years because they like weren't making any money. And the Blazers, I think I think Paul Allen had the opportunity to buy from whoever owned the team, and he just didn't want to because they weren't making any money. But I think it's a different market here now when you look at how popular the Thorns are, the NWSL team that sells out the same stadium that the Timbers play in at full capacity. And then also from a basketball side, how popular the women's basketball programs at Oregon and Oregon state are, and they've had a lot of success. I think the fan base is, is there for it here. And I think it would do well here, especially I, this is what I was saying earlier. I think they would probably play at the Memorial Coliseum at least at first, because the Coliseum, which is the old Blazers arena, and it still is up, and we have a minor league hockey team that plays there, and some some concerts are booked there. But for a lot of you know, for a lot of the uh, year, that arena is kind of dormant, and that arena holds about twelve thousand as opposed to twenty. So I think it would make more sense, at least for the first year, to start a WNBA team out there, and then maybe if down the line, if like they really sell well, you move it into the Moda Center, which is a little bit bigger. So. There's a lot of reasons to make, you know, it would make sense for Portland to get a team. It's just a matter of, and this is something that I'm going to ask uh, a couple in a couple weeks at media day. I'm uh, usually the president of business operations talks. And, you know, in the past, that's been Chris McGowan. He's gone now. Dwayne Hankins is the president now. That's the progress of the WNBA is somebody is something I think we're going to ask him about something else. I'm, I'm going to ask him about, and I'm also curious kind of your thoughts on Portland right now is the only NBA team. Actually, I believe the Suns don't either, but Portland is either the only or the only one of two NBA teams that doesn't have their own G League team as of now. And Mm. I think that's probably going to change at some point in the next few years, but do you have any insight into how, you know, the how quickly that can get done or how much it costs to get a G League team or 
why Portland doesn't have one or how badly the NBA wants them to have one or just kind of that whole, uh, that, that dynamic as it is right now? I, I would guess, um, I think, so I think the G League is actually really interesting, right? Because you can tie it into what, uh, having the presence of the G League Ignite, right? Uh, yeah. Is there, I, I would be interested to see if the NBA explores kind of a media rights deal for the G League uh, separately in the future. And I would think if they do that, they'd want every team to have their own, right? I don't know if Portland is, you know, about to get their own G League team or not. But I mean, we're what, 28 teams? Uh, you would think that it would happen sooner than later. I think they're more open to it now than they have been in the past. The person who used to be the president of basketball operations was always very much against having one because, uh, frankly, it would be more work for him to do. But he was always like he was asked about it you know, on various podcasts that he would go on or I think I asked him about it once and he was he always just completely dismissed and shut the idea down that that it would and he basically like thought it like just didn't make sense to have one which I think is kind of ridiculous but Joe Cronin was asked about it on a radio hit a couple months ago and said that it's something that they're looking at so I think they're more open to it now and I think the league like you said with this media rights deal and this and this, this whole thing now with uh this this exhibition game that they're putting on where the G league ignite, which has scoot Henderson, who's one of the two top prospects in next year's draft is playing in, in uh, an exhibition game against the French team that Victor Wembanyama plays for. I think that's kind of a trial balloon for they're going to, they're good. Like they're making that into a whole big production. They're going to put it on ESPN. I think that's kind of a trial balloon for, can we get, fans to care about the G League when there's these big prospects playing and that could lead to do you think that this is how they would maybe get Amazon or Netflix or Apple involved in the NBA's kind of media rights business like they've been talking about or is this something they might also just give to ESPN or Turner I I don't know that this would be the thing that kind of gets Amazon or Apple or whoever to bite you know the the value proposition for them about adding the NBA or any league is that that's how you draw in new subscribers, right? People who would sign up for Apple Plus, let's say, just to get this league. I don't know how many diehard G League fans there are that would sign up for uh, Apple Plus just because they really want to watch each and every or even some G League games. Um, I would think that would be a nice kind of uh, amount of tonnage for like ESPN Plus, right? Um something like that. Uh, I would think, you know, the, the new in-season tournament when, and if that happens, seems like a nice, neat uh, media rights package to be able to sell off and bring in a streaming network on top of the bedrock deals with ESPN and Turner. Yeah. I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. So do you, do you anticipate whenever this in-season tournament does happen? And it sounds like if it gets approved by the players union, that it might start next season in uh, 23, 24, Will you anticipate that this is maybe something that they sell off to like as any any game that are like part of the in-season tournament games or a part of the in-season tournament, you know, record or whatever, those games would all go to whichever one of the streaming services they decide to do business with. And you think they sell it as a package in that way? Or is that something that you think like TNT might want to have as like a big promotional thing? Or is, is that is that kind of how you see that going? You know, I don't know for sure. Like, this is not me. Um, this is not based on reporting. It's just me kind of thinking it through. But, you know, Adam Silver said yesterday they uh, 
the in-season tournament not ready for prime time yet, but we saw, you know, Sham Sharani reported what that would look like and uh, the details of the tournament. And I, I think Silver mentioned yesterday um, that it could start as soon as next season, right? And that could be a way to um, give it a trial run, see how it, if it works, and also as a, a use case to present during media rights or, uh, negotiations too. Uh, you know, I think it just kind of logically, I think it would make sense as a, as a separate media rights package because you have the tie-in of all the games and the championship for that thing. And, um, you know, it seems like it, it would be a kind of a neat way to uh, sell off some of your regular season games and bring in a new media rights partner without, uh, like, fully diluting, um, you know, what you're giving to, say, ESPN or Turner or something like that. But that's just me kind of thinking it through just what that might all look like. We'll, we'll see, right? We'll see which way uh, the NBA decides to go. There's a number of things that they could kind of split up, right? You also have the, the playoffs too, how they decide to deal with that. You know, I think you're seeing now um, an interest on being kind of uh, broadcast networks too, right? Because those are, you know, getting on ABC, getting on uh, broadcast and not just ESPN. You see like the NFL doing that with their drafts. You saw um, – you know, so leagues having an interest on getting broadcast networks and we'll see what uh, the NBA wants to do and where their games are televised. So I think there's a number of different ways this can all go. Have you followed much about how the in-season tournament has worked in the WNBA? Because they've been doing something pretty similar to that with this Commissioner's Cup for this season. I Did they do it last season also? I think they did it last season too. I think they did, the yeah. Second, the second year they were doing it. Have you been following much about how it was received there or like how players felt about it, how the league felt about it, how fans felt about it. Is that something you've been following at all? It seems like players and fans kind of liked it. I mean, it was also, um, I believe there's a financial incentive attached. And again, you know, for the um, WNBA, that's a lot more of a real thing than the NBA. Right. Like I remember Sue Bird talking about kind of taking a special approach to attaching, uh, attacking the commissioner's cup. Um, when she was talking at the Sloan conference and just really trying to fit, it seemed like the, like they were kind of really going all in on trying to win it. Um, so to me, the question is like, what are the stakes going to be for, for this in-season tournament, right? Like how do you create stakes that make players want to care, that make fans want to care, right? And in turn, uh, will lead to ratings and interest that's not just uh, driven internally by the NBA. Yeah, t- yeah, totally. I'm also interested to see how all this works. One, before we'll get out, get out here soon, but one actual Blazers basketball thing that I want to bring up before uh, I let you go. But on draft night, you were in New York uh, covering the draft, and you interviewed Shaden Sharp, who was the Blazers' number seven overall pick. Nobody here has really seen him play at all because he didn't play his freshman season at Kentucky and then he had the shoulder injury like five minutes into summer league and didn't play there at all. And so I think a lot of Blazer fans, you know, the training camp starts in a little over a week and I'm going to be in Santa Barbara covering it. Uh, I think what Shaden Sharp looks like and actually seeing him play and seeing what he is, is probably at or near the top of what most Blazer fans are curious about going into the season because he's been injured and just hasn't really been available much. We haven't really gotten to talk to him. So I'm just kind of wondering, since you did talk to him on draft night and you did do a story on him, what are kind of your impressions of him? And, you know, if you have any thoughts on like what he's, you think he might be in the, in the NBA or how, you know, just, just, just your kind of your takeaways from talking to him and just kind of your thoughts on him. 
He's a big mystery, right? I want to see him too. I was there that first, I think it was the first night of summer league, right? That first Blazers game. And then he got hurt um, because I, I, I wanted to see him play. And, um, you know, obviously everyone was deprived of that. He got hurt. Uh, he avoided surgery. I, I don't know what to expect. I mean, he's obviously, and this is something I like about him. Uh, he's obviously thinks highly of himself. Like I always like when guys have a lot of confidence. And I think, you know, when we were talking, he said he wanted to be the best player in the league. Um, and I, I respect that, right? Like I like when guys have that in them. Uh, I, I don't know what he's going to be. You know, he hasn't, he didn't play for Kentucky. I think it's a question of how good he'll be immediately. You know, I talked, I talked to someone else from a, another team that had him in for a three on three head of the draft. They were not impressed by his workout. Obviously it seems like the, the Blazers saw something else and I would, you know, I guess their workout with him went differently. I think Mike Schmitz also was very big a, a big right i kind of i've kind of been able to ascertain that mike schmitz who got hired by the blazers like right after the combine for so about a month before the draft and was when he was at espn was somebody who had traveled to all the different aau tournaments and was one of the few people that had actually seen him play in person i've been able to kind of piece together that he was a big driver in their interest in sharp yeah yeah he was and um I, he saw him a bunch going back to high school, I think, um, even before he was a major prospect. I, I think – I don't, I don't want to mess this up, but I believe you know, Mike Schmitz is a, an assistant coach on the Ugandan national team. Yeah. Um, and I think one of the guys that he coached on that team was uh, AU teammates maybe uh, with Shaden Sharp. So I think he got to see him play a good amount, um, and he had a good amount of intel there. Um, yeah, so I mean they have, they have a good amount of intel. You know, it's, you know, I, it's not like as if Shaden Sharp was kind of – uh, you know, not seen by anyone else around the league, but I would say they have a good amount of intel into him. Um, I, I don't know what he's going to be. You know, it's really hard. Like he's basically going a full year without playing um, into the NBA at 19 years old. Right. Um, I, it's going to be hard for him to get minutes because he's got Damian Lillard there and he's got uh, Anthony Simons there. And, you know, that's going to be hard to break through, especially for a team that's going to try to be a, you know, at least a playoff contender, right? Next season. Well, we'll see how uh, Chauncey Billups is in dealing with the highs and lows of a rookie guard. Um, but I, I, I at least liked his moxie. I think that was kind of what I took away from my interview with him um, on draft night and just how, how confident he was in himself. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that all fits next year. What did you think of his decision to just not play at Kentucky? Because it wasn't, this is something that I've I've just I've been trying to, you know, reconcile and kind of figure out and it's been hard to talk to anybody about it because they just he hasn't been available because he's been injured, but you talk about how he talks about wanting to be the best player in the league and then you saw, you know, Damian Lillard's comments to Cassidy Hubbard in that uh ESPN sideline interview during his during the Shaden Sharp's short-lived uh summer league debut. And, you know, you you said he told you about, like, he wants to be the best player in the league. But, like, at some point, if you want to be the best player in the league, if you want to, if you think you're that good, like, shouldn't you want to get out there and play and actually go against people and prove that you are the best player in the league instead of just saying, yeah, you know what, I want to protect my draft stock, so I'm not going to play my freshman season at Kentucky. Like, I've always I've always had a little bit of a hard time reconciling those two things. Yeah, uh, me too. I get that. Um, You know, it seems like, you know, in talking to him, you know, he mentioned that there was a game he thought about, you know, finally suiting up and playing for Kentucky last season before he ultimately decided not to. Uh, Kyle Tucker, who is our great um, Kentucky 
basketball beat writer uh, mentioned that it was a little more complicated than that. Uh, you know, Shaden Sharp had a manager, a handler, uh, whatever you want to call him, um, that kind of seemed to help navigate the process for him and seemed like he dissuaded him from playing and then ultimately convinced him to leave Kentucky too. Because remember, it was not clear that he was going to you know, come back or not for a second season there. Um, and so it seems like the decision, you know, obviously was his own, but also he got some uh, information and some advice from uh, Dwayne Washington, who is the, uh, the manager there who uh, coached him in Canada, I believe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, at 19 or 18, uh, as he was at Kentucky, right? Like you're, you're listening to people around you too, people who, you know, purportedly have kind of your interests at heart and also have certain amounts of uh, sophistication and knowledge about what they're doing. We'll see how that works out for him, but it seems like that was a more convoluted process than just like play or don't play or prove you're good or don't prove you're good. Yeah. No, I think it's going to be really interesting to look at. Mike, I really appreciate you doing this. I think this was a lot of really good insight for Blazer fans into some of the league business stuff that I think a lot of people aren't as up on or isn't really reported on as much in, you know, a lot of mainstream outlets. Uh, those of you who want to follow Mike, you can just, you know, his Twitter is at Mike Vorkanov with last name V-O-R-K-U-N-O-V. Uh, cover, his, his, his beat at The Athletic is the business of basketball. So just a lot of this type of stuff, uh, you know, league business, ownership stuff, investment stuff, different like managerial team building stuff. So if you have any interest in that kind of stuff, Mike is somebody that you should be following and reading his work and as always, you can subscribe to this podcast at uh, on Rose, Rose Garden Report, uh, iTunes, Spotify, wherever. Go, you know, if you want to subscribe to the website, go rosegardenreport.beehive.com. Get a free or premium subscription. And Mike, thanks a lot for doing this. Yeah, Sean, thanks for having me. I'm a subscriber. I'm a reader. So, uh, you know, I'm excited to see where this whole project goes next with the, for you. And obviously, like, Excited to see where the Blazers are going to be next year. I think they're one of the more interesting teams next year. They are, yeah. So uh, th th thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week. The South Dakota Stories, Volume 2. I could see beyond the Black Hills and the way they called for exploration. I could feel the air, the way it paints against skin and fills hungry lungs. I could hear the way the water ran for miles and the way the bison grazed. The way our boots meet the earth as we step past expected. I could imagine my time in South Dakota, and I wish to go back. Because there's so much South Dakota, so little time.